This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 8th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The personnel setting policy at the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee will undergo changes this year. This, just as the Federal Reserve has pledged to finally begin unwinding its balance sheet in the wake of the financial crisis. What will the new FOMC look like? And in a sane world, should personnel really matter when setting monetary policy? Tate Lacey, policy analyst at the Cato Institute, offers his thoughts. We spoke last month. You and I recently discussed some of the big changes ahead at the Federal Reserve, and we didn't get into uh, precisely the policy setting uh, group at the Federal Reserve and how that will be changing in 2018. Yeah, that's right. Um, The FOMC, which is the rate setting committee, uh, when you hear in the press reporting that the Federal Reserve has raised, lowered, or maintained interest rates, uh, that is set by... Uh, the Federal Open Markets Committee. And what they do is uh, they're there comprised of the governors who are based here in Washington, D.C., and a rotating panel of regional bank presidents. Uh, And four of those regional bank presidents uh, change every year. The New York uh, Fed president is a permanent member, the vice chair of the FOMC. Uh, And we have two rotating members coming in that we know quite a lot about, but there are two that we know uh, very little about. The two most recently appointed uh, regional bank presidents uh, will both be voters next year. Uh, They are Raphael Bostic, who took over in June in Atlanta. He's an economist, a labor economist, who served in the Obama administration uh, and in the HUD department. And we also have Tom Barkin, who's taking over for... Uh, the Richmond presidency. He is a lawyer uh, and a businessman. He's been a senior partner at McKinsey. He's done quite a lot of risk management, which may prove uh, to be expertise that the Fed needs, uh, but he is not an economist. So it's unclear how they may be voting. Um, we imagine they'll go with consensus, but um, again, two, two new uncertainties that are coming into the FOMC. And the additional uncertainty that we've had for several years is the fact that the Fed, uh, at least under uh, Chair Yellen and uh, to, uh, I I guess, probably the same extent, Ben Bernanke view their new tools as something that are – that's worth – that is worth defending, their new tools being paying reserves on holdings by banks, excess reserves, paying interest on excess reserves by banks. Yeah, so um, Chair Yellen has become, as her tenure now is is winding down, it's widely believed that uh, Jay Powell will sort of sail through his final confirmation vote. Uh, She's become a much more vigorous defender of the interest on excess reserve regime. Uh, This is quite um, a unique system and uh, in our view is is, is posing quite quite a problem or a number of problems, but um, in particular it is sort of a disinflationary regime. It, it complicates the Fed's monetary policy, putting downward f- pressure on uh, inflation. You, you've now heard them talking about their continued year-over-year failure to hit their 2% inflation goal. So you have these kind of sort of mechanistic problems in the rate-setting uh, policy meetings. Um, and it's unclear where more and more voters, as we turn over into a new year, are going to stand on this. Uh, in particular, it's unclear as to how much thinking uh, some of these new voters have done on 
sort of extraordinary monetary policy measures. Now, two of the rotating members uh, have been uh, at the Federal Reserve System for quite a long time. That's uh, John Williams of San Francisco. He'll be voting for the first time in three years. Uh, and Loretta Mester of Cleveland, who'll be voting for the first time in two years. Um, Williams is widely thought to be uh, one of the closest um, Yellen allies. Uh, they seem to have seen eye to eye on quite a lot of things. He's recently begun talking about uh, potentially changing the the monetary policy regime at the Fed, but only in a very theoretical way. Uh, and then Mester uh, is widely thought of to be one of the more hawkish members. You hear this sort of hawk-dove spectrum. It's not a terribly meaningful uh, dichotomy, but it, it, it sort of orients people on where they are for interest rates. Mester tends to want higher interest rates. Um, the last time she was she was a voter, she dissented twice, thinking that the Federal Reserve was was waiting too long. But we have this new mix coming in, um, and it's not clear it's it's not clear what what the committee will look like in, from that consensus per perspective, particularly with with Jay Powell, who, as a governor, has been uh, relatively quiet, has not been on the forward, sort of out defending the monetary policy regime. He's he's much more of a sort of behind-the-scenes consensus man. So it, it, it will be interesting if and when uh, pressures come from how the Federal Reserve is setting policy, say that the balance sheet wind down uh, starts complicating their rate path of normalization, um, whose voice as a voter uh, will become the dominant one along with Jay Powell uh, is something that is, uh, as I say, something I think is underreported and, and something definitely to keep an eye on. All right. So what is the plan right now with respect to unwinding and getting all this uh, junk off of the Fed balance sheet? So the path is um, a long one. They, they think it's going to take um, several years, maybe a handful of years to get to what they deem a target size of the balance sheet. Of course, they're very coy about that. They don't they tend to only offer uh, numerical values in both broad ranges and sort of in an informal setting. Well, it might be around two and a half trillion or three trillion or something close to that. Um, so we don't know where it's going to be. The one, the one thing we know for certain is that the balance sheet is going to remain far larger than it was uh, going into the financial crisis. Uh, and there's maybe good and bad reasons for that. The, the justification is that the demand for U.S. currency has grown, as it always does, but it's, it's probably up on a trend level uh, more than it was prior to that. So that's going to immediately push up the balance sheet. Uh, but the Fed also seems keen to keep a larger balance sheet um, simply by the fact that they want it. Uh, they, they seem to have learned that they want it as, as a potential policy tool. Um, and that's a little bit concerning because something that we've seen the way it's grown is not merely uh, acquiring uh, U.S. Treasuries, but also buying quite a lot of MBS securities. Those, these are the mortgage-backed securities. Uh, they did that in an effort to sort of help inflate, prop up the housing market. But that's really a credit policy decision and not something that the central bank's balance sheet ought to be deployed to do. So the sooner they get out of the MBS market, uh, the better. They say they want a treasury-heavy, that's the phrase they use, portfolio, uh, but it remains to be seen seen when they'll get there. If you look at uh, the balance sheet over the last you know, 15 years of the Federal Reserve, you see this slow, steady uh, increase and then this rapid jump. You're saying we're not going to get back to that original trend line at uh, as if the financial crisis had not occurred. We'll never get back there? 
it's very unlikely. It will probably be um, there'll be a sort of a if you were to trend out before the financial crisis, there'll still be sort of a jump uh, that would have occurred somewhere in the last ten years. Um, they again, they don't seem to want to go back to the minimal balance sheet where the marginal reserve is meaningful in an interbank market. Um, they they seem to like this new regime where they pay interest on those excess reserves, uh, thereby sort of keeping them out of the system. Uh, they feel it gives them added flexibility. Jay Powell in uh, one of his speeches as a governor discussed sort of the immense resource costs it was to the New York Fed. I'm, I'm not sure why that would be the case. They conduct policy every day anyways. Um, and that there was it was a lot of pressure on their counterparties. So they seem to like having this big balance sheet. But um, I, I think it's more to support this new interest on excess reserve regime rather than alleviating any pressure for those people that used to trade with the New York Fed. It seems that personnel here is of too much importance. And we don't have a monetary system uh, where the personnel, frankly, uh, as long as they share a certain level of expertise, the personnel shouldn't matter that much. And how do we get to a monetary system uh, in which, I guess, the broad public is actually playing a much larger role in uh, deciding you know, what a, a dollar is worth and what our a financial system really looks like instead of the Federal Reserve. I think that's sort of the key insight for why this is an important topic right now, precisely because uh, new personnel has the ability to change how the Fed makes policy in such a dramatic way. So we're the either from Congress the mandate to change to become more oriented around, say, a rules-based policy, or we're the Fed to on its own adopt some sort of a uh, more rigorous monetary policy strategy that they deemed uh, to be congruent with the dual mandate as a way to achieve the dual mandate. I think you would see sort of the reporting on who's in, who's out of the Fed uh, weighing quite a bit, uh, precisely because we don't seem to know what their longer term objectives are, is why you have Fed watchers basically scouring people's past speeches where they've been where they've spent parts of their career, what they've said sort of after interviews. These things are of elevated importance because, you know, what we don't know what's going to happen if, if the balance sheet and the rate normalization paths start to, to create a friction amongst one another. Whereas if we had, say, a more explicit uh, rules-based regime, we would have a benchmark against which to judge Fed performance no matter what was happening. Um, and actually, as I mentioned, John Williams, the president of San Francisco Fed, He's coming uh, back on as a voting member. He has spoken um, that given a lot of economic changes over the last 10 years in the aftermath of the Great Recession, that it really might be time for the Fed to adopt, um, or he, he frames it sort of as central banks writ large, to adopt something uh, more rigorous like a price level targeting is, is what he's been discussing. But, but you're exactly right. Were there something like that either that the Fed took on its own? to bind itself to policy formulation or were Congress to give it something like that, I think you would see um, – certainly the people at the Fed would still be important from a banking supervision and all the other things that the, that the Federal Reserve does. But in terms of monetary policy, uh, there would be a tremendous amount of certainty put in. Uh, and then where these people were, may or may not vote on particular meetings uh, would, would fall a little bit by the wayside in that regard. 
Can we say anything with confidence about uh, a rules-based monetary policy with respect to how that affects uh, planning and expectations uh, by members of the public, entrepreneurs and others? Yeah, I think, um, well, the first thing to say about a rules-based policy is, of course, they would have to be um, credible. I mean, the history of central banks is one where um, sort of one failure after another. So you would have to adopt a rules-based strategy, and then there would be some period, uh, you know, you want to call it a sort of provisional period where the central bank would have to show that it was credibly hit, meeting its commitments um, with regularity before, uh, I think, economic actors, people in the business community, financial markets um, would take it. Now, there's some, there's some indications that the Fed has gotten good at this communication strategy. If you look at financial market reactions to most FOMC meetings recently, obviously not counting the, the financial crisis, um, but in the aftermath of that, there's very little sudden movements in these markets when the Fed announces policy changes, and that's because they've adopted um, a strategy called forward guidance, where they sort of pre-communicate, pre-commit themselves to what they're doing. Um, they're, they always caveat that economic changes could could change their their the, their path of interest rates and the balance sheet changes, uh, but they're pretty clear on what their intentions are. So, if if that's been working in terms of market disruption, then a rule would be at least as good. I think uh, quite a bit better in terms. Um, of how of what level of certainty that would give to the markets, and then you think about something like the Great Recession. Well, if the Fed had certain targets that it was supposed to hit, certain ways that it was going to support um, its monetary policy decisions, um, I, I think you wouldn't see as many swings. Were they successfully conducting policy? Tate Lacey is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. And now a special thank you to financial supporters of the Cato Daily Podcast. Philip and Julie Blumel, thank you for your support during our podcast sponsor program. Without support like yours, we couldn't do our work promoting individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And for the rest of you, you can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.